to be together. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. As you turn there, just to orient ourselves once again, and it's worth repeating, uh, last Sunday we preached kind of a topical exegetical sermon on the authority of the Word of God because we're moving in Ephesians from doctrine to practice. We're moving from indicatives of all the mercies and richness we have received from Christ, all the grace, and now we're moving to how do we live life now in response to that grace. So Ephesians 4 is the beginning of this transition from doctrine to practice. And uh, I, I heard, uh, I was listening to a sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he did a big, long series through Ephesians. And I thought I would share this because I might encourage you, because I know we've been in it for a long time, and it's not a very long book. But when Martin, jo- Martin Lloyd-Jones got to where we are in the text back in 1959, it was his 100th sermon on Ephesians. So don't worry. I think this makes just number 30 for me. So I'm not nearly as belaboring the book as he did. Uh, I will be reading the first three verses, but our attention this morning will be on just verse 1. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us during this service. May the Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts as we hear this word, Lord, as we are challenged to walk in a manner worthy of the great grace that you have extended to us. In the preaching of the word this morning, may the word of God be magnified, may the Son of God be glorified, and may the people of God be edified. Amen. I'm going to start by reading a poem that I think most of you will know. It's titled, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I ever should come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It was Robert Frost, probably one of the most famous American poets of the 20th century, and I mean, you see people share about coming to forks in the road or when they make big life changes and they, they go out into a risky place, you know, they'll, maybe they'll post that last stanza of, I took the road less traveled. And that has made all the difference. Well, the Christian life, the Christian walk following Jesus has often been described as a path, as a road, as the way. 
In fact, when we go into the book of Acts and we read the early story of the church's founding, the disciples were first known before even being Christians. They were followers of the way. The way being the path following Jesus. And that is why this metaphor is so rich in the Christian life. That's why Paul talks about walking here as a, as a way of referring to this Christian life, this pathway of discipleship. And we're looking at just first verse 1 because it really serves as a thesis statement for everything that's about to come in the next several chapters. And so to, to summarize just this verse, I'm going to put together a really poorly worded sentence, but it contains my three points. So if you're really into grammar, I'm sorry, but just bear with me for the point of our, uh, our three main points. The sum of chapters four through six could be described as this. Therefore, walk as called. Therefore, walk as called. Because there are three important words in this first verse that point us to what Paul is uh, asking us to do, that point us and connect us from all the good doctrine that we had to now what comes and lays ahead of us. So let's look at that first part of my poorly structured sentence, therefore. Now, it'd be weird to think about this, but when you read your Bible, you know, it's the inspired, inerrant Word of God, which means even conjunctions matter. And that's why that right here, therefore, matters. You, whenever you get to the therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is it there for? That's at least the way I was taught it. And it's because here, Paul is now shifting. He is moving from the doctrine of chapters 1 through 3 to the application of chapters 4 through 6. And while verse numbers and chapters aren't inspired, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this as you've read the Bible for any length of time. Sometimes you come across and you're like, why is there a chapter break here? Or why is a verse starting in the middle of a thought? And the old joke was that as the, the person, I forget when, whether it was in the medieval ages or somewhere in the middle ages, as he was putting together verses and chapters into the Bible, he must have been doing it on a horse. And every time he hit a bump, he started a new verse. But it is interesting that, at least here in Ephesians, he does capture a good structure for Paul's thought, because the first three chapters had to do with doctrine, and the latter three have to do with application. And we see Paul do this elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in Romans 12, 1, Paul uses the exact same language. I, therefore, urge you to walk. I urge you to walk moving from the doctrine that he had laid out so beautifully in the first half of Romans to now these applications. This is what life looks like. Doctrine comes first, but it doesn't stop there. Charles Spurgeon said to his students for ministry that those who do away with Christian doctrine are, whether they are aware of it or not, the worst enemies of Christian living because the coals of orthodoxy are necessary to the fire of piety. As Presbyterians, we place a pretty high priority on getting our doctrine right. I dare say sometimes we're even a bit self-righteous about it. We'll have a little bit turned down our noses at some other Christians who interpret the Bible differently. I'm not saying 
her heresy or anything like that, but just have a different interpretation or come to a different way of structuring the church. We place a high emphasis on doctrine. And sometimes we do this too with just focusing in on just one verse at a time or always wanting to be reading theology or always wanting to be getting into the big, big doctrines of the Bible like justification or adoption. And that there's a comfort there because we're constantly focusing on what Christ has done for us. I mean, that's, that's really amazing. Shouldn't that be what we all want to hear about is always the work of Christ on our behalf. And that's true, but there's also doctrine that has teeth to it. That's got a little bit of a bite to it. And that's the doctrine of sanctification. And that is what Paul is moving us to. That's the therefore, moving us from the glories of our justification, the glories of our adoption, the glories of being united together as uh, people from diverse backgrounds, united by the work of Christ, forgiveness of our sins, and now being one new people. I mean, those are beautiful, glorious truths, and we can all, you know, enjoy those, and then we get maybe a little uncomfortable because there's a therefore. God now moves through Paul to say, because of everything that is glorious and true of those chapters, I am now going to tell you how to live. And we don't like it when people tell us how to live. I mean, this is evident from when you tell a toddler to do something about how they live, to telling a teenager about how they live, to being a grown adult and still having your parents or your spouse or your boss tell you how to live or do something. There is a human, almost knee-jerk reaction to that where you say, well, why? Why do you get to tell me what to do? What grounds do you have to speak over my life? I mean, this is, this is sin. This is what Satan, and this is why we looked at last week, his first attack on Christian, or on Christians, his first attack on the people of God was to make Eve doubt the word of God, to make Eve doubt the goodness of the God who gives us this word, the, to make Eve doubt that God had authority to tell her, don't do this, that is, eat the fruit of the tree. So the therefore is really important in our Bible reading. We are always being moved from deep truths of the gospel to then living out the gospel. And that's why we're not going to get to it this week, but you can look at verse 2 where he talks of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I mean, these are good virtues that he is calling us to. The gospel is not always, the, the, the commandments of the gospel are not always don't do something, or this is a, a dangerous avoid it. We're going to get to those. But he leads with the gospel and living it out have virtues of care, virtues rooted in love for others, virtues that even non-believers would say, well, who wouldn't you know, benefit from some humility? Who wouldn't benefit from gentleness? I could use some patience. So that is what he is doing with the therefore. He is connecting all these deep-seated doctrines to now saying, because of that, because those are all true, here is now how you are going to live, and you're going to have to walk in order to do it. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, the apostle, the apostle has already mentioned walking. If you remember back uh, in Ephesians 2, 
In verse 1, he says, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We once walked in sin. We once walked and pursued our own selfish ends and desires. But the apostle kept going and he said, you know, but God being rich in mercy has saved us and he's delivered us. It was all grace, no works. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he concluded his thought with this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To walk after Jesus is to live life in submission to his commands. That's why Jesus would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He has something to call us to. And walking was an ancient way of describing uh, following someone's teaching or, or following their, uh, their leadership. And you have to think about back then, I mean, there's, there were no cars. There's not even, I mean, when you look at the Gospels, we have zero references to Jesus ever even hitching a ride on a donkey until he's coming into Jerusalem. He walked everywhere. His disciples went everywhere with him. And there's even a, a saying among rabbis that you would walk at the dust of the feet of a rabbi because you would literally be pursuing this rabbi you want to learn from. And when you walk in a desert environment, you're going to kick up dust. Your feet are going to get dirty. We are to pursue Christ on a long walk of discipleship. And as I said, we're, we're dealing with this doctrine then of, of sanctification. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sanctification is God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Paul is saying, I urge you to walk. He doesn't say you're going to immediately arrive. The Westminster Shorter Catechism said God enables us more and more to die unto sin. He doesn't say it's immediately going to die when you come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ. We are so impatient sometimes, even with something good like the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, that we just want to instantly be, you know, have some sin die. We want to instantly be perfect. We want instant satisfaction to everything that we know is going on with us. And what we're called to is a walk, a pursuit. It'll take time. It'll be a journey. But the walk has a destination. We're not wandering aimlessly anymore, like the, our ancient ancestors, the Jews that wandered around the desert for 40 years. I and mean, we are walking with purpose towards a goal. And that end goal is Christ. Now, we may get distracted along the way if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, Pilgrim, the stories of Christian who is longing to go to the celestial city. He's got a path. He's got a, a map, a, a way of getting there. But along the way, he is constantly running into obstacles, right? He has some people that join him immediately and then only to abandon him the second the pathway gets hard. He, has, he falls into pits of despair along the way. He gets enticed 
by cities that look really shiny and pleasurable, and they tempt him to stay there along the way, and every time he has to keep pointing or being pointed towards the celestial city. His walkway has a path, an end goal to get to, and that is what pushes him forward. He, he knows that if he can get there, he'll be free from everything that is holding him, literally weighing him down as he carries this massive burden with him. And notice that we are, the, the text, you may have gotten alarmed by this because Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And you think to yourself, I'm not worthy. Like, I, I, I'm a, I've walked this Christian path enough to know worthy is not the word I would use to describe myself before, in relationship to God. But notice it doesn't say that we were worthy and so we were called. We were called first, and we walk in a worthy manner because of the grace and mercy and majesty of that call. It's the only thing that we can do is to respond to it and walk after it. And so now as we're walking, we're supposed to reflect the, the, the depth and the eagerness to pursue God as, out of the outpouring of the grace that we have received from him. That brings us to that, that last thing of my poorly worded sentence, therefore walk called. We have been called out of sin and obedience. That's what we saw in chapter 2 of Ephesians. But we have been called to hope. And you see this in Ephesians 1, 18. Paul wrote, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then in 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters the apostle wrote, he said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And if you notice here that the apostle said he was moving from doctrine to application, but he can't even get through the first verse of this application part before going back to doctrine because calling, effectual calling, the change from a heart that is being ruled by disobedience and sin to a heart that is wanting Christ and more of the Holy Spirit, and that's effectual calling. That's how we respond to the gospel. And that's right here. That is what is going to motivate your walk. That's what gets you up in the morning and says, all right, yesterday was, was rough. I lied. I fell into the sin again. I've, you know, I've stumbled for the 10th millionth time over this sin that I can't seem to, to defeat. What is, what is the hope that I even get up and want to walk this Christian life? What is it that will motivate me? It's the calling on your life by a God who is merciful and long-suffering, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness was the way he described himself when he revealed himself on Sinai. The way you continue on the walk, when, when the path gets dark, when Frost was saying, you know, there's this other path that didn't look as well explored, and that's the one I went after. When there's roadblocks, when there's sin, when there's sin from yourself, from others in your way, how do you know you can walk safely to the celestial city? How do you know you can follow this path that the Lord has called you to? Because he 
is faithful. Paul said he will surely do it. That's the beauty of sanctification. That's the beauty of all these gospel commands, right? In justification, we don't do anything. We receive everything from Christ. It's his, it's a legal word. It is him declaring over you innocence when you deserve nothing but guilt. Sanctification is his promise that this new life that he has given you will continue to to grow and blossom. And he's going to ask you to do things. He's going to give you commands to actually live out your life, to pursue holiness, to watch how you behave sexually, watch how you talk, watch what you consume in the world, watch how the world is infecting you and keeping you from holiness. All of those things he gets to tell you, and you are asked, you're commanded to respond to them and obey. And then when you break your faithfulness, what do you do? When you stumble and trip, your sandals falling off, your knees are scraped, you're looking up at the path ahead of you, you've got zero energy left to go, what lifts you up and continues to keep you moving a little bit further down the path? It's because he is faithful to you. You will not always be faithful to him, but by his word, he will always be faithful to you. That is what he sent his son to die for. That is what we taste at the Lord's Supper, faithfulness. There is nobody in the world more committed to your holiness than God himself. So when you don't have the strength to walk another five feet, trust in the strength of the God who calls you to walk, who is faithful when you are faithless. And there you will find a reservoir, if I said that word right, a reservoir of eternal strength, of eternal grace. And he's just asking you to go a step at a time. Remember, sin will die more and more, not instantly. The walk is a long walk. It's not just out into a different room. Near the end of John Newton's life, the great hymn writer, the great uh, abolitionist, the great epistle writer, if you, if you actually do want to have strength and encouragement in your spiritual life, I really encourage you to grab John Newton's book of letters. They're some, filled with some of the most beautiful pastoral advice. Uh, he was full of such humility But if you know anything about Newton's life, he was a a horrific sinner. I mean, he captained slave boats. He was foul-mouthed. He was a drunkard. I mean, he was just, he was a bad dude. And the Lord gripped his life. And from all of that gave us a gift of amazing grace. How sweet the sound. From all that gave us this legacy of just gracious sermons and letters And near the end of his life, uh, it was his habit as he would eat breakfast to read through uh, the scriptures. Someone would read them out loud, and then he would pause and and give a little extemporaneous exposition. I mean, it was family devotions to get your day started. And one morning, uh, the reading came from 1 Corinthians 15, and they got to verse 10, which reads, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And Newton paused for a really long time. And then he gave this short little exposition. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. 
I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, you can heartily acknowledge that you are saved, that you are being sanctified, that you are further along the walkway, the road less traveled called the Christian life than you were when he first called you out of sin, out of disobedience. And that's something to rejoice in. So Christian, this day, if you are struggling with, I'm not doing enough, I'm not reading my Bible enough, I'm not, I'm not following these commands, I urge you just to, for a moment, peek back over your shoulder and look at the steps he has brought you thus far. Look at where you once were, and then give thanks to God by his grace that you are what you are today because of him. And if he was faithful then, he will be faithful and bring you to the celestial city. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you walk with us. We're thankful that you don't leave us. And Lord, we are amazed at the plan that you've given for our lives. We know, Lord, that you call us to respond to this gracious act of salvation by loving you more and more and loving others. But Father, we, we know we are weak and we need strength to do it. Help us along the way that we would continue to live our lives in obedience to you and your Son. Feed us now at this table to give us strength, us weary pilgrims, as we trod the path again this week. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.